Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year And to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. Hello and welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast on tour and live coming at you here at 2.30 p. 
p.m. hour in Mountain Mountain Time Zone, the 4.30 p.m. hour Eastern Time Zone. And as we do, just filling you in with where we're at at this point in America. It's 3.30 Central, 1.30 Pacific, 12.30 Alaska. I'm not going to go backwards in time over to Asia, but it is, I believe, around... 4.30 in the morning in Seoul, South Korea. And that's really all I can tell you right now based on experience. It's the middle of the day here. We're hanging out. Meg and I just recorded a awesome, awesome HF Pod bonus episode. And we are here today on Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, to talk through the 29th anniversary of the third and third to last performance of Game Henge <laughs> ever. 322-1993 from the Crest Theater in Sacramento, California, a location that Mr. Trey Anastasio got vastly incorrect the last time they played Sacramento to open their fall 2021 tour when he thought they just played there eh, six years ago. It had been 1996. <laughs> so. A, a location that has seen some excellent fish shows, and this show that we are going to discuss here is um, an incredible one, a really exciting fish show. I'm very excited to dive into this. Before we do that, though, Megan, how are you doing here today? And um, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but like, oh, no. we haven't seen you in two weeks. How have, how have you been? How has, how has life been for you? I've been doing good. I've had some time off work, which is just awesome, and I've been enjoying that. I took a vacation. It was unexpected in many ways, but we're all healthy and together, and I got to see a really cool city. I've never been to Argentina before. I got to go to Buenos Aires, and it was amazing. I got to show my kids, and they translated for me, which was super cool. They speak Spanish and it was, you know, the first time they've been able to use their Spanish in the real world. And that was super exciting. So we had some awesome moments and hopefully I can go back. I totally forgot to like give accolades and praise to this when you told me it over text. The idea of your kids translating for you in a foreign city that just in and of itself, it's one of the coolest things in the world. I am so, so, so stoked about it. What a like, what a promise for a future generation that is able to take their parents who are well-educated, who are well-traveled, who have lived overseas and say, mom, I got this. I can get <laughs> yeah. food. It was awesome. It was so cool. Whenever we would have to speak to someone in like a store or, you know, a taxi driver, like if we didn't have enough pesos and we needed to know if we can pay with US dollars or if there was children at the pool, the girls were able to engage in conversations with them. That was was pretty amazing because, you know, you hear them learning Spanish at school for all these years and you think, are they really learning anything? But to see them <laughs> use it was so cool. And now they're, you know, inspired. They're like, I have to live somewhere, you know, while I'm in college or something and do a year abroad and or at least a semester so I can really learn Spanish. And it was really motivating. So it was, it was pretty magical, I have to say. So I'm grateful for that's, that. That's awesome. So you were overseas uh, in, in 
in Argentina uh, traveling and uh, enjoying yourself. I am currently, anyone who watches this show on a regular basis knows that my background is completely different. I'm currently in an Airbnb in Missoula, Montana, where there is no translation needed, although I do speak with a little <laughs> bit of a country drawl when I'm out, outside of the town, uh, just because it's, it's the way it goes. It's gorgeous here. This is um, my wife and I met in Missoula for, we went here for college. And it is my favorite place on earth. And uh, to be broadcasting HF Pod live from Missoula, just I, I can see Mount Sentinel and Mount Jumbo out our kitchen window. Uh, we've been doing some hiking. We did some skiing. Um, we have been looking at houses, which, you know, who knows what will happen with that in this market. But my goodness, I love it up here. The sun is shining today. It's a beautiful day. I've seen some old friends. It's been very good. But um, we are oh, here so to nice. talk about. It's nice. It's nice. We are, yeah. we are here, though, to talk about another magical land. You've got Argentina. You've got Montana. And you've got Gamehenge. And we are going to talk today. We're going to step through the portal along with Colonel Foreman. We're going to talk about Gamehenge, our thoughts on the overall story, our thoughts on this show in particular, March 22nd, 1993, and our thoughts on this pressing question that like for a long time I thought was the least interesting question. Someone may say still is the least interesting question, but I actually think it's pretty interesting uh, now again, uh, which is will fish ever play game henge again? And I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious to hear yours. Um, we are going to talk about all that here in a second. I do want to give everyone a quick reminder who is hanging with us. Um, please subscribe to Osiris media on Apple podcasts for HF pod premium. We uh, went ahead and recorded an excellent bonus episode here just before this, that will be going live towards the end of this week. We've talked about Trey's album, mercy. We've talked about our favorite uh, versions of catapult. We have talked about our favorite cities to see fish in. Um, we've talked about a lot. It's been a really cool, fun experience, uh, diving into these bonus topics. So please do that. Help support the podcast. And that uh, gives you some more insight. Um, I also want to have Megan tell us about our phenomenal sponsor here for today's episode, Sunset Lake CBD. Sunset Lake CBD's line of smokable hemp products are for the old deadhead, like, I don't know, Jonathan Hart, maybe, or for the young fish fan, like Ryan Storm, searching for a mellow body high. Smokable CBD has all the benefits of high THC cannabis without the paranoid and anxious side effects. They've got nine different strains this year's harvest, and there's something for everyone. The Hawaiian Haze is awesome for an outdoor show, and Cherry Abacus is best for the end of the night. All the flour is grown, cured, and trimmed by Sunset Lake CBD farmers. And I have to say, this is really been like a game changer for me because I I never knew really a lot about smokable CBD until I started using Sunset Lake products. And it's really nice. It's really nice to feel like you can relax and chill out, but without getting really high. You know, it's a really like mellow feeling. So I would encourage people if they haven't tried it to try it. They also have this really cool farm to table approach and it gets you really good pricing on premium CBD flour because they ship directly from their farm to your door. And it comes really fast too. They have incredible shipping speed and their products are great. So check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the coupon code HFPOD and you get 20% off all your products. So that's Sunset Lake CBD 
farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Absolutely. And I want to just say for regards to Sunset Lake CBD, I had a friend come over and hang out and we in, in we, we utilized some of the Sunset Lake uh, a couple nights ago. And his response to it was, every time I've ever decided to get high when I had something important to do later in life, <laughs> later in the day, I always wanted this to be the way that the high went. Where I'd, yes. I'd, I'd smoke a little bit and then I'd be like, hey, I can still do what I want, but I feel relaxed. And he was like, I have not discovered anything like that until today. And that was that is the magic of Sunset Lake CBD. So um, definitely, definitely agree with that. Um, so we're going to dive into a couple thoughts here about Gamehenge just kind of in general um, and then get into some specifics around the shows where they've played this at as well as talk about the Crest Theater 93 show in particular. Um, what I want to in invite anyone who's watching this to do is share with us. I I'd love to have this be an ongoing thing throughout the, the episode. Um, share with us uh, if you think Fish will play Game Engine again, and if you think they should, and give us a why there. Share that in the comments, and we'll share that as we're uh, going throughout the, the overall episode here. Um, Megan, I want to start with you though. Tell me when you first came across the Game Henge myth and what it kind of meant to you from, from the start and, and what your kind of thoughts were as, as you were becoming a fish fan. I don't remember the exact tape, but I know that someone gave me a tape with Game Henge on it. And this was probably, I mean, it must have been. I don't know. I mean, it must have been one of these early ones because I started listening to Fish a lot in 94. I don't think I had heard them yet in 93. Maybe I had heard them a little bit, but I was really listening to them a lot in 94 and saw them in the fall of 94 for the first time. And so I don't remember what tape it was. I'm not good at remembering which tapes people gave me, but I remember hearing it on tape and being like, what is this? And I was a theater person. I did theater mm. growing up. That was my whole life. I went to college for theater. I moved to New York City to be an actress. So for me, hearing Trey's narration and getting this world opened up to me of this story, to me, it felt very theatrical. And I loved that. And was one of the things that really endeared me to this band even more because they just would really go there and take risks in telling this like crazy story. I remember also being convinced that I deserved to, to hear Game Henge, but I, I feel like the more shows I went to, I was like, I deserve this. And then especially when we were in Europe 96, I really felt like I deserved it. Um, I don't know why. It's not like the band asked me to go to Europe. You know, they were doing fine over there without me, but I felt like I had followed the band to all of their headlining shows in Europe. I really felt like at that last Mark Tall show in Hamburg in Germany in 96, I thought, this is it. Like they are going to play us Game Henge. We all kind of convinced ourselves of that. And, um, you know, it had been two years. Like we felt like this would be a really great time. It did not happen, obviously, but I feel <laughs> like Gamehenge is such a magical, mythical part of Fish, and because now they haven't played it in so long, I feel like it's just developed this 
I don't know, this really mythical status of just, it's like the unattainable stat, right? Like very few people have seen a game hinge set. So it's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a stat that I want. My first tape was 111794 set one. Um, and that is a show that I've never really heard many people talk about. I, I, I love the first set. It's, it's, but it's, it's, it's not like there's anything on it to like totally blow your mind. Like it's a very entry level set, but within that first set, there's a Colonel Forbin's into vibrational life into famous mockingbird. And I remember the first time I was hearing it, um, I knew Wilson, I knew ACDC bag. Um, I think those were the only two game hinge songs that I knew at the time. I'd never mm -hmm. heard Tila at that point. I'd never heard the lizards. I definitely hadn't heard the sloth. Definitely hadn't heard McGrupp or Forbins. And so Forbins starts and it's telling the story. And like, there's like cues in there that are like referencing Wilson and they're referencing Iculus and they're referencing moments that like, um, are a part of these other songs I had heard that I really liked, you know, ACDC bag and, uh, Wilson were like just early draws for me with fish. And then it goes into this vibration of life and your Trey does such an amazing job in there. You know, the first time I heard it, I was driving through back country roads of Wisconsin. Uh, I was 16 and I was like smoking pot for like the third time, you know, so like everything was <laughs> new and exciting for me. And I remember just like closing my eyes as he started the narration, which was perfect. And like the music and his narration creates this like image in your mind of you riding this wave and then floating through black nothingness and then seeing this like realizing the black nothingness is also is actually this like very isolated object in your vision and as you get closer it's not black it's green and it's like got it bumps over it and suddenly it's all encompassing and suddenly you realize you're in game henge and like the music goes crazy. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. Like they said game henge, I think in, in Wilson, like what is going, you know, there's all these like cross paths, you know, going on for me at that point. And I'm asking older people who are giving me fish tapes, like, can you explain what's going on? Like, oh my God. And someone who finally <laughs> explained it to me, I was just like, holy shit. Like this band is not just a band. Mm -hmm. Like they have this universe that they've created in kind of the way that like Pink Floyd did with the Absolutely. wall um, or like the, the mythical nature of like dark side of the moons match mashup with uh, uh, the, the wizard of Oz where mm -hmm. I was like, I got this sense of like the music that like my dad has always been the person who's like pushed music on me and like, you know, introduced me to music. But like, I always had a sense where I was in like late junior high and early high school that like everything like big and crazy you could have done in rock music kind of ended in the seventies. And mm -hmm. I realized with fish, like I was totally wrong. There was still so much more to discover. And anyway, I, I, I got like the farmer's almanac and the fish companion at some point. Um, and I, at that point, uh, just started researching and learning about uh, uh, learning about Game Engine, what was what like this backstory was, and that's where I came upon these shows. And these were like 
six of the shows that I like or five of the shows I searched for and went after as early as possible in my fish uh, fandom, because I was just like, I need to hear what's happening. Mm -hmm. I need to hear what's happening in this experience. And this show that we're going to talk about 322, 1993 was the first show that I heard the first game hen show that I would listen to. Um, So that's our backstory in terms of how we how we got into this. Is there any, any additional thoughts you have from a backstory standpoint? Not really. I think that's good. Well, let's jump into it then. So mm-hmm. I want to direct listeners as well um, to undermine season one, episode five. Mm-hmm. We talked about Gamehenge uh, during that episode. Uh, RJ... Jonathan, Brad, and Matt dove deep into fish in 1987, 1988, and kind of peaked with the 312, 1988 show, billed as Story Time at Nectar's. Um, this was notably John Paluska's first fish show, and this was also the first known live game hinge, complete with narration between songs from a grup through possum. The show contains the first version, the first fish version of the song Jump Monk, which was not a part of Gamehenge, but is a part of uh, the overall set. Uh, and it also has the awesome first known version. Awesome song. Awesome and Charlie Mingus song, yeah. It's going to be featured in a conversation that we're going to have in April because it makes an appearance in one of my favorite fish shows of all time. This also has the first known versions of Tila and Forbins. Although if you go to May 21st, 1988, Trey calls Tila a debut. Antelope, which would come after the conclusion of Gamehenge, contains Dixie teases from Trey. The members of Fish were, by account, at the Frank Zappa concert up the street at the Burlington Memorial Auditorium before the Nectar, next, Nectar's gig, which may or may not have influenced their decision to come home and play their rock opera for the first time ever in front of a paying car pain audience, which also, like I said, at the start had happened to be John Paluska's first show who would go on to be um, fish's manager for the next decade and a half. Meg, I mean, how much this happened this night? Like this night, there's just, it's crazy. It seems like there's already like this mythology with this night. It, it seems crazy that all of this happened on one night. It just seems like so like what was going on in the universe in Burlington, Vermont that night? Like there was like some serious vibes there being thrown down. Like it's just like amazing. Yeah. Matt said in the Undermine episode that I always, I love this perspective that like, it's kind of just like a myth building upon a myth. Like the idea that like all three of these things happened on the same night. Like there's no, no way that this is possible. Um, Amazing. I love it. It's, it's hilarious. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that like, it adds to the lore of fish though. You know what I mean? Yeah. And listening to this, this show, I guess this set is all we have, but it's so interesting. There's like, background music playing behind when the band stops and Trey talks, you can hear it sometimes. Not that they're playing, but just like in the bar. And I just kept trying to picture myself in this bar like when this band is doing this. Like it's just such a leap of faith to do something like this in front of an audience. Like, you know, play something so risky that requires such incredible attention from the audience. I just think this is so awesome that they did this in a bar 
presumably late at night, like after the Frank Zappa concert. Yeah. So I just, I think it's just amazing to think about being there and what people, the reaction was. I just can't imagine. Well, it's a Saturday night and like, have you ever been in Ectors? Yeah, I have. Like it's small. Mm -hmm. It, um, so I actually, I just, before we went live here, I got finished eating lunch at a restaurant that used to be like my college bar slash a venue that I would go to um, oh, on fun. Wednesday nights. They would do, you pay $5 at the door and you could drink anything you wanted uh, as much as you wanted until one o'clock in the morning. And these old guys <laughs> would play like dire straits and the grateful dead and Dylan. And like, it was awesome. It was called That's wasted awesome. Wednesdays. And the place is like about the size of Nectar's. And, you know, it's the type of place that like when there's enough people in there and there's enough people like really getting down, it feels like you're playing in front of a, a stadium type of thing. And Nectar's kind of has that vibe. Mm -hmm. It's like small, but like you get enough people packed in there and it feels really big. And you talk about like the courage and like how brave it must have been to like stop in between these songs on a Saturday night in March in Burlington when everyone's itching for spring and, you know, uh, Frank Zappa's playing down the street and, you know, it's, it's cold outside. So why go out for the night, but it's Saturday. So like, let's go out and meet some friends and party and fish decides to de debut this and just see like, you know, do you guys get into this? And it's wild to me that this was not played you know, parts of it are played throughout the late, the latter part of the eighties, but they don't play game hinge again until, uh, 1991 and they won't play a complete game hinge again until 1993, the show that we're going to mm -hmm. talk about this show. It's interesting. The structure here, cause it begins with McGrupp, which as would be featured in later performances of game hinge will be a song that is kind of showcased as, the you know kind of like the force awakens type of period mm -hmm. compared to uh uh a new hope empire strikes back return of the jedi <laughs> it will be like looking back on yeah, what it's happened the it's the end and so they they open game henge with mcgrupp they go into then lizards tila wilson bag forbins mockingbird sloth and then possum kind of this semi game hinge song and then end with antelope just a classic fish song to end with it it feels like a very it it, it it's surprising to me i think more than anything that this was not repeated two weeks later or a month later you know what i mean yeah i mean i think from what i've read is that maybe that was because the rest of the band wasn't super into it, that this was kind of trey's thing and so you know i think that even later on when they talk about maybe recording it, which maybe we'll get into, it seems like that was maybe dropped because the rest of the band wasn't super on board. I'm sure they seem like they all would support each other immensely. I don't mean to say that, but it seems like it was kind of Trey's thing and not necessarily the band's thing. And I think that, you know, at that point in time when they talked about recording it in like around like 93, 94, the band was growing so much. And it seems like they decided not to, in case like you know, it really came off poorly maybe, but I think this seems more like it was Trey's kind of thing unless the band, you know, they wanted to go more about like in the direction of growing their catalog and their shows. Who knows? It's an interesting point. No, it's a really good point. Cause like 1988 is 
one of my favorite early years of fish because you just it's it's the last year where you get kind of wild abstract jamming um <laughs> in, before they really tighten things up in 1989 and you know you think about they're just kind of throwing a lot of ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks and i wonder in a sense if like they kind of walked off the stage and were like i don't know if that's really suited for a live crowd and i feel like we should use the opportunity in front of an audience to experiment that said there would be four additional versions which we should jump ahead three mm -hmm. years to 1991 where fish is playing the north shore surf club in olympia washington october 13th 1991 which is about as far from Burlington, Vermont, as you can get. <laughs> yeah. This show is so interesting because it seems like they kind of backed into this. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem like this was planned. You know, the songs are not really in order. And it Trey mentioned something about how the audience is like, is this the one where he's like, the audience is listening so well? Um, oh, no, this that's a different That's Crest Theater. That's Crest yeah. Theater, yeah. But this one, it seems like just, I mean, the whole – this whole show is played so well. I mean, th this is like an incredible, incredibly well-played show. But I think that it seems like they weren't maybe planning on it. I don't know. That's just the vibe that I get. I get that too. And it's interesting because this will be the last time until the 94 shows where they will play like the next one that we're going to talk about, Crest Theater, they play in the second set. They play the Game Henge mm -hmm. in the second set. Here they play Game Henge in set one. And you get Jim Wilson Reba and then Landlady. And then you get Forbin's Mockingbird. And from Forbin's through, well, you get Forbin's Mockingbird, Tila, Bag, Sloth, McGrupp. And from Forbin's through McGrupp, you get legit narration in there. Mm -hmm. Trey is telling the story and explaining what's happening and catching people up. But there's no lizards. Um, there's no Wilson, uh, there's no possum, which, you know, could be, or could not be there, but like you had Wilson earlier in the set, but you don't have it as a part of the game hench saga. Uh, it, it definitely showcases a band that like, I almost get a sense from this show that like, well, we're so far from home. Who knows if anyone is actually ever going to hear this? Let's just yeah. clue people into this. We're, you know, you've got to imagine at this point, five months from now, they're going to debut the secret language. At this point, they're thinking like, how do we really reel the crowd in with like narration plus also music? And it kind of feels like, let's just cue these people in to the last part of, you know, this, this, this saga that we wrote in our last decade. I don't know. That's, that's the vibe I get from it. Yeah, his narration is really great in this in this show too. It's his he has a cold that night. And I think by like mm. ACDC bag, you can hear his voice starting to like wear, but his narration is great. And the playing behind throughout all of these songs is incredible. It's like there's a lot of like textures and flourishes and fills, and it's just it's really beautiful. It's like the rest of the songs from the show too are like really energetic and aggressive. I mean, it's a really tight show. It's really great. I'm reading reviews on Fishnet right now, and <clears throat> one that I just think is really interesting just to set the scene of this show is the surf club was a very narrow, long building, which had the effect of making the crowded floors seem very intimate. The mm. stage was so narrow 
that Fishman's drums were set up behind Trey and Mike rather than to the side as usual, which this is a time in their career where like they were, they played in a line and at the same time, they're not playing on like, you know, a universally designed stage Mm -hmm. that every place you go, you set up the exact same way as you would have set up the night before. And so as a result of that, you get this experience of like, Hey, you're playing in a bar. You guys just set up like this. And, you know, you get this sense of the band feeling very comfortable, but still being feeling very loose. They're not at home. They're just on the road at this point. And they decide to throw out game hens just to see the reception. It's, it's such a wild moment. Really cool. So I want to jump past because we're going to talk in depth about the 322 show here in the second half of the show, but they play fish. They play game henge on March 22nd, 1993 at the crest theater in Sacramento, the other West coast game henge show, which is just wild that out of two out of three game henge performances have been out West. This is the only one that happened in set two, but jumping ahead to 626, 1994, you want to tell us a little bit about this show from Charleston, West Virginia? Yeah, this one's really interesting because this show's pretty empty, they said, like about a third full, which is pretty interesting. And I think there's a lot of lore about the band punishing people when they skip shows or (laughs) rewarding fans who don't skip the kind of show off the beaten path. This show's in Charleston, West Virginia. And I think they, he said they'd only played there once before, I think, but I think it was part of a festival or something. So this is the first time they're ever playing in Charleston, West Virginia, like headlining a show. And, oh yeah, I think it was Mountain Stage they had played before. And this is not too long after Hoist came out a few months later. And yeah, they start with Kung and then go into Llama and play through Lizards, Tila, Wilson, Bag. Forbin's Mockingbird, Sloth, McGrupp, and Divided Sky. I mean, the full, like, full set. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, this is um, essentially what we will hear two weeks later in um, mm-hmm. uh, in in Great Woods. Um, they will obviously swap out the, like, Kung vibe for NO2, which we'll talk about. Um, but this... This is one of my favorite. This might be my favorite game hen show. Oh, really? Oh, cool. The game hoist show. I remember I mean, hearing about this and being like, I have to get that on tape. Like, I have to. It's crazy that they played the whole hoist album for the next set, too. Like, what were they thinking? I, I know that afterwards they came off and that second set actually inspired the Halloween cover ideas because they were like, that was cool. We played an album. Like, what if we played another album that wasn't ours, which is amazing. But I'm just so curious as to what inspired them to play this whole album. I think a lot of it was, and I want to give just a quick shout out to our listener, Stacy Klein, a very loyal listener of HF Pod. I had tickets to the West Virginia show, but I didn't have anyone to drive down with from Mansfield, uh, Pennsylvania. Mm. Last time I ever skipped a show because I was solo. I feel yeah. your pain. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I've had this happen. I tried mm-hmm. to go, I, when I was like 17, I was trying to go to Deer Creek. Uh, and my mom was like, you're not going unless you have like multiple friends to go with. And nobody could... Like I couldn't coordinate with enough people to go with. And so I just skipped it. And like those shows were amazing. 
I I feel this this vibe. Stacey. That one that hurts. Is, that's rough. <laughs> that is that is truly the band punishing their their loyal fans who cannot be at this show. It's not exactly. choice. It literally cannot be. I, I think to your question, from everything I've heard and everything I've read, they'd been playing the hell out of hoist throughout mm-hmm. the spring and summer tour. We talked about this when we were talking about hoist. We talked about this last week when we talked about the six nineteen ninety four interview, which happened about a week prior to this. Um, and I think it was almost a sense of like, well, we're going to play game hinge and set one because there's nobody at this show and we're just going to mess with our fans and say why West Virginia guys is not far from Pennsylvania, from Maryland, <laughs> from New Jersey, from even Southern New York. Like you all can get down here. Yeah. Um, you know that we're on a good tour. Don't skip any of these shows. Come to them. You know, we're playing new markets. Show these people that you have, we have a loyal fan base. And so they're going to play something that they're never going to do again, which is Game Engine set one and then set two, uh, play the entire Hoist album. Kind of almost as like a tongue in cheek, like we've been playing this all the time. Now you're going to have to deal with an entire set of it, which I love the like already aggressive new material vibe of the summer, spring and summer 94 shows. Yeah, and this album, like as we talked about during Hoist, it's it's awesome. And I think that yeah. it really flows as a set really well. I want to highlight, um, and I agree, I think that the album flows really well. It was one of the things that was cool walking away from that conversation was the idea that like, if you think of Hoist as a fish show, it works mm-hmm. really well in that sense. Um, so the only song that wasn't played from Hoist is Riker's Mailbox because there's <laughs> – no real way to play that live. Little fish could make a bunch of noise and, and make it happen. Um, it marks the debut of the old home place, which is really cool and really interesting, uh, which is played acoustic without microphones. Um, it also features the first complete game hinge since March 22nd, 1983, which was 134 shows prior, um, which is wild to think that a spring 93 show was 130 plus shows prior, Uh, (laughs) you know, these are bust outs that are happening uh, a year earlier. The first tube since April 12th, 1993, 120 shows divided sky also includes wipeout teases um, and old home place and uh, amazing grace were performed without microphones. Um, Really interesting show, really interesting moment in fish history, which is in some ways eclipsed, um, by a show that is just phenomenal. Uh, it was a dinner and a movie show is now an officially released show. Great woods center for performing arts, July 8th, 1994. The first set has an incomplete game hinge saga, which has narration between songs from NO2 all the way through divided sky. Llama was unfinished as it faded into NO2 featured fish or NO2 has fish on vacuum in the second set, which is not, uh, this is not the game rift set, although they open the second set with rift <laughs> as a way to almost like jab their fans. Rift <laughs> contains Manteca teases, does not have the whistling ending. Stash from this show is the Alive One stash, which is one of the greatest tension release stashes ever. And Flashlight um, uh, is teased during You Enjoy Myself along with Frankenstein, which was then played in the middle of You Enjoy Myself. One of the things I love about this show, and it was always phrased this way to me, this was a love letter to the Northeast and to the band's original fans 
to say thank you. We are growing. We are we are coming back in the fall, and we're going to be playing some big venues, and we are going to be growing as a band. Thank you all for your support over the last decade. Here is Gamehenge for 25,000 people. Just an amazing thing. What are your thoughts on this show? Amazing. I mean, also, wasn't there Shapiro said he was going to skip this show and go see ARU? And I think Fishman (laughs) told him, don't do it. We're going to do something amazing. Um, I'm wondering if they were planning on doing something amazing prior to this conversation or this was like the impetus, like, oh, okay, maybe we should do something amazing. (laughs) But I love that backstory. And this is show so funny. When this show came out in Dinner and a Movie, my friend who I see all my shows with now and we've met like as adults and we met and bonded because we both realized we were fish fans. And she's one of those people who goes to shows and just completely loses herself and isn't like a stat keeper or isn't analyzing the shows. She's just like there and in the moment. And when this came out and dinner in a movie, she's like, Oh my God, I was at that show. And I was like, wait, you saw game hen. She's like, Oh, I guess I did. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh my God. It's just like, so funny that like, you know, you can just realize that um, that's the joy of being a 1.0, I guess. But um, yeah, so so she saw the show and this was like a hometown home run for sure. Like this is like a winning game, you know, for the home team that I agree. This was a treat for the fans. And it's interesting to me that they haven't wanted to do it since then. I don't know. I guess we're going to get into that, but. Well, yeah, I mean, let's, I, we, we, and we can jump into that. I mean, I, I think the thing that's amazing about this show is that they're playing this in front of 25,000 people. And it's a long first set when Trey includes all that narration, <laughs> but like the dedication to it and the band's commitment that, hey, we're playing two nights at Great Woods. We're going to do one, it's going to have Game Henge, and then three sets of normal fish and we'll, we'll let, we'll let loose at that point, which ultimately turns into like three sets of pretty outstanding music uh, throughout the weekend here. This is the Friday night show. But so this is the last moment that they ever played game engine before we dive into the three twenty twenty three twenty two three twenty two ninety three show. Meg, do you think that fish is ever going to play game henge again? And should they? Yes, I do think they're going to. Because they are a band that knows their history and like think makes nods to it sometimes, not always. Like it's interesting when I was reading about this, I read a 2001 interview with Trey where he said they asked if they were going to release Game Hands, is one of the live fish releases, the first when they were releasing the first ones. And he said, Yeah, I, I, I think there's been two of them, right? Like the Crest Theater and another one, right? I've never heard any of them. And that just fascinated me. Like he doesn't even know how many times Game Henge has been played and he's never heard it. That's just incredible to think that something that means so much to the fans could be something that like, you know, they're not living with every day. Like they're just moving forward. But I do think that they do understand what fans want and, you know, often give that to them, whether it's more 20 minute jams, turning mic up, you know, they hear what the fans want. And I think they know what this would mean to people. And so I do think that they will do it at some point. I think it will probably be not when any of us expect it, which was, which is really hard because we won't know. And those of us that won't be there will be devastated, but 
I mean, I don't know. It, to me, like they've played it at under, you know, shows that were like underattended and where are fish shows that are underattended these days, maybe like randomly in California. I don't know. Yeah. But I also feel like, what if like we go to MSG on 420 and like the show starts the first set and it's game hinge. Like, can you imagine like people would be like sobbing. Everybody would be like emptying their pockets, like putting anything in their mouth that they had. Like it would just be like, I think that it will happen. And I think they should, because I think that it's so special to the fan base and they know that. And um, yeah, I also think it's one of those things that kind of shows that like a show doesn't have to have a, 35 minute soul planet or like, you know, a huge, huge monster jam to make it a great show. I mean, I do think that that usually means a show is incredible, but I also think that there's so many things that fish does well beyond that. And I think game Henge is a perfect example of that. So. I think I'm right there with you. I think that they're going to do it again as well. I think I never thought about this. Um, I wouldn't have thought this within the last 10 years, you know? Oh, really? Um, yeah. I, I, like, I remember when Fish announced Festival 8 and they announced that there's going to be an acoustic set that people were like, oh, man, that set is going to have Game Hinge. Uh, they announced – there was like – well, no, it wasn't announced, but like the truck set. You know, as the truck mm -hmm. came out, like Twitter was like, oh, they're going to play Game Hinge for one now. Um, Trey obviously messed with all of us by saying that they were going to play Game Hinge at Coventry. <laughs> yeah, that was cruel. Um, really cruel. Um, <laughs> you know, there were conversations around uh, Mexico at some point because it's such a, you know, it's a limited show that people are going to go to. Of course, they're going to play Game Hinge here. To me, I think that the perfect setting for it would be they do these when they do these festivals now they play a two set friday night mm -hmm. a three set saturday and a two set sunday night and that three set saturday has a daytime set that usually starts around like three o'clock in the afternoon and stretches for about two hours it's a longer first set and then they take an extended break and they come back and they play two sets of music and I feel like that set mm. at some point, either the next festival or the festival after that is the perfect setting because people are relaxed. It doesn't have the same intensity as yeah. a first set at a normal fish show. It kind of feels in the way that that first night in Mexico, which is just like an elongated mm -hmm. set feels where it's like, of course you're focused on fish, but fish is also kind of just like a part of the experience. And one way to really bring people in would be to say, you know, here's llama to kick off the show. Nobody's thinking twice about it. And then suddenly we're in game hinge and suddenly, you know, everybody's webcasting the show and it's not a show that like you couldn't be at, um, pretty much anyone can go. It's hard for those festivals to sell out. And ultimately they deliver it for the fan base at that point in time. That's, that's my prediction. That's my thought. Um, someone shares friend of the pod here, uh, Mr. Greg Knight, host of the excellent podcast, the great beyond shares your vibe, Meg 420 <laughs> 
the man who stepped in yesterday opener that goes into game hinge. I like that. Yes, like let's that. manifest that. No, I feel like honestly though, they wouldn't do it then. I feel like if I'm really being honest, it's going to be at some random show in a random place where they play this incredible first set and they are just feeling it. Like they're feeling it. And that's when they're going to come out and do it. I think honestly, it's probably not going to be at some big show like an MSG opener or like a Mexico show. It's going to be somewhere that they just get in that vibe and it just feels when they want to play catapult or, you know, this, whenever they feel these like special kind of like tapping into who they used to be moments. So well, let's talk, let's talk about that. Cause that is, that's a very good podcasting segue into <laughs> the, the show at hand, which, you know, thank you everyone who's been listening as we've been going through the backstory and back thoughts of game hinge. I think we're both in agreement. We, we think it's going to happen again. We don't know where. I think you make a very strong point that it's not going to be at a heavily hyped show, which is kind of what I was pushing with it being a festival. And I think to your point, part of that is I'm assuming here the surprise value and yeah. also the requirement of the crowd being fully attentive and fully into the show is an important thing, which is what happens here on March 22nd, 1993 at the Crest Theater in Sacramento, California. The only time that Fish has played at the Crest Theater, but not the only time they've played in Sacramento. They've played in Sacramento uh, six times, 830, 92. Uh, they opened up for Santana, 322, 93 at the Crest Theater. Uh, only five times, I should say. Uh, 927.95 at the Cal Expo Center. Saw that. 11.30. You saw that show. That's a very mm -hmm. famous dead arena. Um, yes, it's amazing. Uh, dead amphitheater. 11.30.96 at the Arco Arena. Incredible, incredible second set. And 10.15.2021 at, at the Golden One Center, um, where the Kings now play. But here they were at the Crest Theater, and they come out. Tell me your thoughts and we'll kind of dive into the first set here. What are your thoughts on this first set and what were some highlights here for you? They come out so hot. I mean, they played so well this entire set. It's just really perfectly crafted set list. I think if you listen to this, it's it kind of builds up at the right times, releases at the right time. Like Uncle Pen is so great right before this incredible stash. I mean, this stash is like, has just such an incredible peak. It's insane. And afterwards, Trey thanks the crowd. They must've just been going bananas after this stash. Cause it's, it's really great into like a really beautiful bouncing. I think the whole set list of the first set is just perfect. It's really like really well played. There's just so much texture to their sound. This Reba and the Bowie are excellent, excellent, like perfect 1993 versions. There's so much energy in this first set. Yeah, it's a very classic spring 93 first set. We'll talk about this uh, during the 30th anniversary because March 93 is one of my favorite months of fish. Two songs in particular just crushed throughout this month. A lot of songs crushed, but Stash is one of them, and the and the Weak Pod Groove is another one, um, as well as You Enjoy Myself and David Bowie, which we get three of those for uh, throughout this this first set or this show overall. But yeah, the Chalk Dust, the Gula, 
what a classic pairing to open up a fish show stash is incredible. Um, at the end of it, Trey, thanks the audience, which kind of gave me my first indication that mm-hmm. he's kind of noticing that the, the audience is really attentive and that they're really into this. Um, I don't know if the venue was sparsely filled and that was part of it. It's a Monday night in Sacramento, not really their home territory. Um, famously like fish still can't sell out arenas on the West coast. Um, every time I've seen a show on the West coast, be it the forum, be it San Francisco, be it everything I heard about the Sacramento show this past year. Uh, they just, they don't sell out those, those rooms that big. So like, I wonder if even at this point, like playing a theater, Mm -hmm. they weren't able to sell it out. Um, but stash is incredible to me. The highlight of this overall set is the Reba. Mm-hmm. I am a sucker for Reba's, but like this one, just reading the jam chart here from fish.net. So really fluid and laid back jamming with Trey, all but absent, relatively speaking in parentheses, as if inciting the others to respond. This results in an all but total dialing down of the sound. Not so much a secret language as a testament to the band who, via subdued and nuanced playing, managed to maintain the structure of the jam before Trey works through a series of cool rhythmic shifts and wonderful sustain to arrive at the note. That was the vibe I got. It gets so quiet. And yet Mm -hmm. the band is like, they could do this thing in 1993 where it was like Fishman would lift his sticks off the drum set but he was still playing the rhythm and yeah. like Mike was his pick was off the bass. So like every, you know, page was playing above the keys so that when they finally went back to their instruments, they were all in unison still. And it's so mm. wild to hear it, especially in a jam like Reba. Yeah. They're playing so precisely. I mean, it's incredible how fast they can play and how precisely and how tuned into each other they are. And they're really tight. They're incredibly tight. Any other thoughts that you have on set one? I don't think so. I think we're ready to move to set two. One thing I do want to just point out is the sound check is Haley's Comet, <laughs> Way, and a cover of Two Princes. Two Princes. Was, <laughs> that's What's like, more 1993 than that? <laughs> like throw that as like a random encore into the show and it's uh, it, it, it elevates it somehow. Um, <laughs> so they come out for set two. And I just want to read one of the reviews here from fish.net. Cause it's, it's, it's really great. Um, I was quite lucky to be there that night and quite lucky to be on the rail. The rail at the crest was unfortunately high, nearly at chin level. And my buddy, uh, Nightwing had this little cookie monster puppet propped up on the rail so he could tell people where he was. Anyway, Trey launches into the narration of the game hench story, and suddenly the security guard, who had been staring at us blankly for most of the night, gets up from his post, walks over to the rail, pets the little cookie monster on the head, and walks across the other to the other side of the stage. Trey seemed to lose his concentration. After the guard petted the cookie monster, Trey's jaw drops. He falls silent glaring at the guard and walks across the stage. And he says, I'm sorry, I was just looking at this guy right here and continues his narration. Uh, at that <laughs> point <in time. laughs> um, Just to set the scene of being there, but they come out, they open up with Golgi and they go into it's ice before using the silent part, the jam within it's ice to drop us into game hinge in one of the coolest ways. I love the way that they do it on the night of um, the great wood show where, where they use NO2 and the kind of the dentist mm-hmm. chill, really get the vibe like you're going there. That's very but cool. Here you get to use another song that has nothing to do with Game Henge. 
to give you this sense of like every song could be a portal to game hedge. It's wild. What 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 do you think? No, I love that. Yeah, I love that how it trays like, okay, we're we're under the ice now. And and now, you know, he's he tells the story about what's going on and it's ice and he's like, and now he we're under the ice and we're looking up at our double and and that's, you know, I haven't had an audience this attentive and quiet in years. He's like, in years. He's like, so we're going to tell you this story. And it's just, I love that they can use, yeah, other songs or other imagery and to kind of, that can become the portal. And you're right. The portal in the Great Woods, though, is pretty spectacular just because they're doing some amazing sounds behind being the dentist chair. It's just so cool. But to me, this set is like, and this whole show is such a throwback to who Fish was before 1994. Mm. Like, they're just this weird band who kind of defies categorization. They played like incredibly precisely, incredibly fast, really inventive music, and also cultivating this audience and rewarding them for good behavior, for like attentive listening and you know, we're going to pass a secret language to you. We're going to see if you can pass it on to friends and see how fast you can do it. We're going to tell you this story and bring you into our world. You know, it's just, you know, bands don't do that. And I think this is exactly like why they became who they did. And I just love that this is them rewarding the audience. It's just, it's so cool. It's an interesting point as well. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about the sense of like punishing fans for not mm -hmm. being at a show and Hey, we're going to, you know, the dark side of the moon show from 98 yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is a perfect example of this where the band was just like, Hey, you're not, you're not going to show up to this show. You're going to the next show. Like you guys left Vegas and decided to drive straight to Denver. Cool. We're going to do something that is going to blow all your minds. And there's that like side of them. I remember talking to someone about this in the, uh, undermine season two interviews, this idea of, um, uh, fish, is playing this constant inside joke on their fans that their fans can't help but want to be a part of, even though the mm -hmm. band will keep playing the joke on you. Yeah. You know, where like <laughs> they will do things to screw with you deliberately because they know that that's going to make you want to be, you know, it's a Stockholm syndrome type of thing with fish sometimes. <laughs> you're just like, yeah, whatever you guys want to do, like I'm like screw around with, with my emotions, screw around with my, uh, uh, with, with my family's finances so that I can just go and see all these shows. <laughs> <laughs> like do whatever you want but like when you do that great thing like i'm gonna be super happy um but then they'll do these things where they will reward an audience and this is very much that and this was one of the things that appealed to me about fish was like you know when i was a when i was into music in the mid to late 90s i was into a lot of bands that like were getting a lot of like marketing assistance and a lot of radio play and they felt like they were uh, on the surface, they felt like they were really caring about the audience. But then I discovered mm -hmm. Fish, and I was like, well, this band doesn't need any of that. They need the audience. And and maybe those bands did truly care about, you know, their their listeners. But, like, for me, Fish needed their audience, and they knew that. And they knew that that was, like, a push-and-pull relationship of, like, we have to evolve in these sort of ways. So you're going to trust us in terms of what we want to do, what we need to do. We're also going to screw with you. But if you are around enough and if you really showcase as a, as a fan base that like this means as much to you as it does to us, we're going to give it back to you at times. And this is very much one of those moments um, where it's, and I, I doubt this was planned. I have to imagine mm -hmm. this was similar to the Olympia show where the band almost was like, 
they walked into this show not knowing that they were going to play Game Hinge. And then during set break, someone noticed like, hey, they're like really listening out there. We should give, we should do something, you know, about this. And Trey, you know, realizes I can tell this story. I haven't told the story in two years, but I can tell it now. I mean, I just love it. And I also think that this to me is one of the reasons why I really connected with the band is because I was super into the Grateful Dead then. And seeing the Grateful Dead in, you know, 93, 94, 95 was, it was just so different. You know, they were kind of just this, I don't know, universe that was existing kind of felt to me very separate from the fans. You know, we, they kind of were, they were like, I don't know, they were like gods to me, you know, they just, they were just these giants of music that had just, I've been learning so much from, and they had, you know, just completely transformed my view of music. But then I start seeing this band in 94 that's like really looking at the audience and feeding off of us. I remember my first show just being like, I was like row 18 in Grand Rapids, Michigan in this theater and, and watching how much Trey looked at the audience. And it was so different from how Jerry or Bobby, like they like look off, you know, and Mm. Trey does that, but he was also like looking at us all the time. And like, they all just seemed so, I wrote in my journal that night, like they seem so like blown away that people are so engaged. And, and Mm. I felt like that vibe from them. And I feel like that's what they're doing here. They're just like really recognizing that people are so engaged with their music that they want to give them something that's like really that they can just kind of like sink their teeth into. Yeah. And you get that with game Henge is this idea mm-hmm. of like all of these songs separately are classic fish songs. Like if you mm-hmm. hear lizards, Tila Wilson bag, Forbin's mockingbird sloth to a lesser extent, but still sloth. Um, and then McGrupp at a fish show, you know, you've seen a pretty special fish. I mean, ACDC mm-hmm. bag has been played a ton. Wilson's played a lot, but like the other songs, Lizards, Tila, Foreman's Mockingbird, uh, McGrupp are all very rare fish songs. And when those songs are played, it's a, oh, oh, they're playing that. Like mm-hmm. something's happening here. I mean, I remember uh, I was I was at the uh, the Night Three at Dick's, one of my favorite shows, and they open with MoMA Dance. Cool. Sunday night, everyone's just getting into a groove. MoMA's never like a shocking, oh, my God, they're playing this <laughs> right now type of thing. But then they play McGrupp as the second song, and it was this, nice. I think hmm. that they – they they're thinking about their set list in a really cool way right now. And they decided to throw that in here in a way that it changes the dynamics of the show almost immediately. You know, lizards opened up the second set of shoreline last year. Uh, first time it had ever opened the second set and then it opens the show in Mexico this year. Mm-hmm. First time that's ever happened. And you get this sense when they play that song in these unique spots of like the band is really keyed in here tila was one of the biggest bust outs for a long time mm. it's like all these songs as songs are huge huge deals within the fish community but then you turn them into this larger narration and it showcases a band that is thinking on the level of like you know 70s proc rock bands where they're like mm-hmm. all of our lyrics all of our songs all of the melodies they all have a meaning they're all going to be tied together Famously, they use like the interlude music in McGrupp as the interlude music during narrations for some of these game hinges. But I want to ask you, like, what does the game hinge story do for you aside from fish lore, if anything? I think to me, it's just 
a window into Trey and also a window into the kind of past that they are. And when I think about the pieces that came together to form this, like, you know, the poem that Tom sent to Trey that he posted on his dorm room, the Wilson song that, you know, Tom and Aaron Wolf wrote and to make, you know, kids laugh and sang to Trey. And he was like, oh, I totally get it. You know, I think about all these different pieces and how they build like such a rich universe and how meaningful it is to to Trey and to kind of like the, the fan base. And I think that it's just one of those like layers that deepens this universe in a way that is you know, meaningful and also fun and playful. And I think that's what makes this band so fascinating is because they're still doing that. I think when you think of things like Casvot Vax or Sci-Fi Soldiers, these are, you know, things that are, they're still inventing because they are playful and they're self-referential and, you know, they're, that's who they are. And, I think that it's just, this is kind of like the first example of that, but I think this totally inspired so much of what happened later. That's such an interesting way to put it. I I really appreciate you answering it that way. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. Like the, the moral of game hinge is kind of a tried and true story. You know, someone comes along, saves a community, and then they become corrupted by what right. saved the community. And this cycle, you know, is, is, is unbroken. Uh, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, as my history professor used to yell at us, uh, whenever talking about 19th <laughs> century, uh, Bismarckian <laughs> rail politic, uh, which we can talk about. I mean, I've been th- going back in, in the, uh, the, the I don't think I can talk mind. about that. <laughs> I studied acting. I think I told you that before. <laughs> I like walking on my college campus has been this like just you talk about nostalgia this oh my god I forgot that I learned that that was an incredible anyway um I love that I applied all history to fish but you know the idea of like absolute power corrupts absolutely is is this sense of it's a pretty basic level story like let's let's be real here um but I think your point about like it's it's an insight into Trey and it's also an insight into who these guys are is really it's really true. And like this idea of like a morality story, no matter how basic it is, the fact that the band has decided to write a rock opera that is a morality tale at, at its root says a lot about who they are as people. Mm-hmm. And especially for a band that like didn't really get into political writing until very, very recently in any way whatsoever and really didn't let their political stripe show. You Mm -hmm. kind of knew where they were, but like they weren't they didn't show that in any sort of way to have this be like a centerpiece of who the band is, this morality tale of like good versus evil, good triumphs, but whatever good utilized to triumph ultimately will make them uh, impure again. So like you have to get back to the root of what the lizards, you know, it's, it's an American tale in a lot of cases. And I gotta like say the, I I went to Vermont in 2016 in the summer and we were staying just outside of Burlington in this little Airbnb. And I remember walking out, we were staying like kind of on like a tiny farm and there was a big mountain in front of us. And I remember walking out in the morning and just going, 
this is game hinge. Like literally <laughs> this place. Yeah. And I, have you spent much time in Vermont? Yeah, I used to go to Burlington actually once a year. I went for like nine or 10 years in a row. My husband and I loved it. We went in the winter, the summer. It just became, we randomly ended up going there. My husband got, it was like a um, like a benefit. He won like plane tickets to Burlington in some sort of sports thing. I don't know. And he, we went and we just fell in love with it. And so we've been a bunch. It's a special place. Vermont's it's amazing. It's really special. And like Vermont feels it feels old world America in a way that like, I can't believe is actually real. Like it's hard to get around there. There's like one or two interstates across the state. So oh, like yeah. to get totally from, been like, lost one, there, you get lost and like, from like your one GPS town, stops working. It stops working. And like one town to another, that's like over a small mountain pass. It's actually like a two lane <laughs> mountain pass that like weaves up this road and then weaves down. And it takes like 35 minutes to go 15 miles. Um, <laughs> I remember like my wife and I, when we were there, we were just like, this doesn't feel like it feels like a European country in some cases. It feels like the vibe that Trey was trying to get to with, um, you know, with Gamehenge of like fears of increasing corporatization, fears of, you know, something evil coming in and taking away what is pure here. The air is clean. The water is good. There's lots of trees everywhere. It's blue, beautiful skies. Uh, it's, it's local businesses. All these things are just like make Vermont so special. And I remember just being there and being like, this is game engine. And I think like at that simple route, that's a special thing, even though it's a basic idea in some cases, and it doesn't go to like these depths of morality. It's still a really special uh, simplified, uh, philosophy, like from a guiding, you know, a guiding philosophy standpoint. Yeah. And if you want to write something that's going to mean something to people, it has to be universal. And I think that it, you know, if you think about the great rock operas, like you think about, you know, the who's Tommy or you think about Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon. I mean, these are, you know, they're universal ideas, but they're incredible because they're, you know, rock songs that tell a story. And I think that that is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> you know, if it was, there would be a lot more of them because they're amazing. And that's why I think preserving, you know, this rock opera, because it's not a musical. A musical is like a play or a movie that has, you know, we're dance singing and dancing are like important parts. This is not a musical. It's it's a rock opera. And I think about how important it is that this is played again, recorded in really high quality, you know, released archivally. Like this is an important part of fish history and also just an important part of American music. So that's also another reason why I think they should play it. I think that's a good place to, to cut it. That's, that's good. I agree. I think that there is something there that like, really speaks to where we are right now in history yeah. and it's it's a huge accomplishment and we should we should the, the stage should be graced once again with game hinge um any last thoughts that you have on this show i don't think so just that this is my favorite game Hinge show this one. as a whole entire show yeah yeah the the three twenty two ninety three. what any 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 reasons why that we didn't get into i just think the whole show is amazing i think yeah this is the show that I listened to that I kept stopping the most and being like, wow, this is phenomenal, phenomenal show. 
I think what's interesting about this show is, you know, I don't think that they planned to do this and yet they nail game hinge. Like yeah. Every, there's, there's no like, Oh shit, I forgot that part. Or, Hey, I have to reference back. Like it's told <laughs> exactly the way that it should be told. But then at the end of McGrupp, you know, theoretically they could leave the stage at that point, come back for the encore. They give us an incredible Mike's groove in a, in a period in time where we groove uh, was amazing. This is not a jam chart. We groove according to fish.net, but it's a quality week groove. Mm-hmm. There's, there's better ones from the month, but like they're going to give us that at the end of the set is, is kind of a sense to me of like, all right, we're going to close out the fish show now that we just gave you that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're still not done. We're still not done. I love that about it. Um, well, this was awesome to talk through fish's game hinge, talk through our thoughts on it. Um, I, like a lot of our listeners out there, I, I wish I could see a game hinge. I wish I could have seen a game hinge. What a special moment to be a part of. I, I wonder what it would be like to be in the room when they start playing it and they start, oh. Trey starts a narration and the whole place recognizes. Like there's something when they start Harpua, but mm-hmm. like when the whole place is like, oh my God. Like I remember reading about um, when they do the Dark Side of the Moon show that when they started Time, the whole place went crazy because it kind of signified that we're not just teasing dark side right. of the moon in Harpool. We're going to play dark side of the moon. And that is just something else. Yeah. That moment, it's going to be amazing when they do it next. I mean, it's going to be after this long, it's just, there's going to be a lot of tears. It's going to be a lot of tears and it's going to be an interesting caveat of living long enough and seeing fish long enough to see another game hinge. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we will be back next week as we are every Wednesday. Next week will be our last single single episode week. We are moving forward with two episodes a week starting April. I believe it's April 2nd, whatever the first, maybe April 4th, whatever the first Monday in April is. We will be back Monday and Wednesday. Lots and lots on the table. We're very excited. Next week. Meg came up with this idea, so I want you to explain kind of what we're talking about here next week. Well, next week, we're going to be talking about the first ever tweezer, which is so exciting. I mean, tweezer, just this crazily important song in fish history to be there the first, think about the first time they ever played that song. And then I think we're also going to talk about some other notable versions, right? You yeah, have to remind me what the, the date is exactly. Is it? It's like March. I think it's March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety. Is that the March date? March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety. The first ever tweezer. They play it at a frat house, which is kind of hilarious. And we're going to dive I into mean... that. We're going to talk <laughs> about the version. We're going to talk about the song's origins uh, within the sound check, and then we'll talk. Yeah, about like what did this song that has been with us for only thirty two years? What did this song mean for fish, and how did it evolve with them? We'll reference back to an excellent version of HF Pod from 2017, where they talked through fishes jamming through the ears of Tweezer. But we'll also talk about just kind of what is this song's impact on fish been and what have been some of the notable versions. So that will be next Wednesday, March 30th at 4:30 p.m. Eastern. I'm very excited to be doing that with you as well as with our larger group. And then we will be coming back the following week with episodes on Mondays and Wednesdays. Before we go, however, I do want to remind everyone 
about our sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. They are a majority an empl- excuse me. They are a majority employee owned hemp farm located just outside of Burlington, Vermont, which we've been talking about. Great, great place in the world. For years, Sunset Lake was a dairy farm producing milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. In 2019, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. They embrace Vermont's tradition for land stewardship by using sustainable and regenerative farming techniques to build and protect healthy soils. They are 100% pesticide-free. They use minimal tillage and implement cover crops and crop rotations. They also serve as a research farm for the University of Vermont's agronomists. I think I got that right. Well done, Brian to study hemp and inform best industry practices. Um, We talked about this at the top of the episode. I mean, the products that Sunset Lake provides are absolutely incredible. Uh, I've been using them for months now and I I use their salve. Like I get a lot of tension here in the back of my neck, probably always on my phone too much. I'm just kind of like always relieving tension, if you will. And like, this just helps out in this part of my, uh, this part of my neck in such an incredible way. Their edibles are so great at the end of the night. Their tinctures, I love putting them in tea. Uh, their smokables are incredible as we talked about at the start of the episode. So please check out sunsetlakecbd.com. Use coupon code HFPOD for 20% off all products. Again, that is sunsetlakecbd.com. Coupon code HFPOD, Sunset Lake CBD, farmer owned, Vermont grown. And finally... I will remind you all, please subscribe to Osiris Media on Apple Podcasts as well as you can become a reefer still. That'd be fun as well. Um, We are posting Fish Premium episodes on a weekly basis, and we're going to be expanding our premium content here into the spring. So lots and lots happening here. Really helps to support um, independent podcasts, and we greatly, greatly appreciate your dedication. And we love spending the time doing this. The more you give, the more that we're going to talk about fish. You know what I'm saying? Our our conversation today got really deep. It was Very really deep. good. Yeah. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Yeah. And if you subscribe, you can get all the episodes we've already recorded. So you could hear all of our conversations that you've missed. So please And do. all the ones that are yet to come. I mean, it's so exciting. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Meg, as always, it is a pleasure to talk with you and talk fish with you in the middle of the week here. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your time. This was awesome. This is so fun. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you here next Wednesday. Have a great rest of your week. Take care of each other. We'll talk with you soon. Bye.
Osiris. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.